This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this week, we have one of my absolute heroes on the show. Conrad Anker is one of the greatest mountaineers in the world, and he's going to tell us the story of the hardest climb of his life. Are you ready? Yeah, I bet you are. Let's go. Conrad is a legend, and I don't say that word lightly. For the last 30 years, he has pushed the boundaries of the sport, climbed the hardest routes, put up multiple first ascents all over the world, and is recognized by many in the climbing community as the greatest living mountaineer. So he's had some pretty good adventures. But there was one peak, one summit that always eluded him and that he wanted to climb above all others. Its name was Maru. It's located in the Garwal region of the Himalayas in northern India, and he first heard about it as he was coming up as a young climber, scaling big walls all across the western United States and elsewhere. He was in his early 20s, and his mentor at the time was a guy called Muggs Stump. Now, Muggs was also a legend, one of the best climbers of his generation. He saw Conrad's talent and drive and took him under his wing, training him, teaching him, pushing him to be the legend that he would soon grow into. And Maru was always Muggs's dream. He had a picture of it next to a prayer flag in his van that they used to bomb around climbing in. They would talk about it in hushed tones. It was the symbol then, as it still is today among elite climbers, of the pinnacle of mountaineering, an almost mythical peak, a peak of extraordinary beauty, difficulty, and danger, which at that time had never been climbed. He told Conrad about it, and they vowed to climb it together one day. They vowed to make Muggs's dream a reality. But sadly, he died before they had that chance. It was 1992, and he died falling into a crevasse while descending the south buttress of Denali. It shook Conrad to the core. Years passed. Conrad's climbing career flourished, but he never forgot that vow. And then, in 2008, the opportunity arose and he found himself making the trek back to India, back to that mythical mountain, one of the most dangerous, difficult, and beautiful in the world. This is the story of that climb. This is the story of Mount Maru. But before we take off, I just want to let you know there is a movie about this climb and it's simply called Maru. It's shot and directed by another legend, Jimmy Chin, who also directed the award-winning solo movie. It is amazing. It won the Audience Award at Sundance and you can rent it on Amazon, YouTube and elsewhere. You can also follow Conrad on Instagram and Twitter at Conrad underscore Anchor. That's A-N-K-E-R. And you can follow him on Facebook at Conrad Anchor Official. And his website is simply ConradAnchor.com. But perhaps most importantly, Conrad wants you to know about the outdoor nonprofit work he's involved with. And if you enjoy this episode, if it inspires you and means something to you, and if protecting the mountains and the outdoors means something to you too, which I know it does, then a great way to say thank you to Conrad and be a part of something really important 
is to go and check out some of the amazing work he's doing, one of which is the American Himalayan Foundation, which he's heavily involved in. And you can check it out at Himalayan-Foundation.org and also the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation, which he set up in honor of his best friend and climbing partner who tragically lost his life while they were on the mountain together. The website for that is alexlow.org, or just head to the episode page of the website for more details. Thank you for whatever you can do. And finally, just a quick request, as always, to say, if you're enjoying the show, please help by spreading the word. Follow and subscribe to the show. Leave that five-star review. Just hit as many stars as you can. You don't need to write a thing. It only takes a minute. Just go straight to Apple and bang out as many stars as you possibly can. It makes a huge difference for the discoverability of the show. So thank you so much. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can find out background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show, and sign up for the newsletter. But don't worry about that right now because we are about to go on one of the greatest climbing adventures of all time and we're doing it with an absolute legend. We are going to climb Maru. Climbing is interesting because when you say climbing, there's so many different ways to interpret gravity. You can go bouldering, you can go indoor climbing, Olympic climbing, speed climbing, trad climbing, sport climbing, wall climbing, aid climbing, ice climbing, high altitude climbing, deep water solo climbing, nude climbing, (laughs) all these different ways to interpret gravity. And while Everest is the tallest mountain, it's not the hardest. And so if you were to say, well, what's the hardest mountain? It might be one of the hard sport climbs that Adam Andra has opened up in the Flatinger Cave in Norway or something like that, where you're not going to the summit, but move for move, it's the most difficult. And so something like Meru, which is not pure technical difficulty and not absolute altitude, it's somewhere in between. And as I was coming of age in the 80s and 90s, Meru was sort of the epitome of like, that was what alpinism stood for. It wasn't Everest, but it was high altitude. It was technical climbing. It was very aesthetically beautiful. All those things kind of combined into one. For mountaineers, Maru is the ultimate peak. And yes, by the way, he did just say nude climbing. Apparently, it's a thing. And no, sorry, he had his clothes on for this one because Maru is over 21,000 feet tall. And let's face it, if there's one part of your body you don't want to get frostbitten... But before the documentary of this story came out, almost no one outside of the hardcore high-altitude climbing community had heard of Mount Maru. But for those that had, it represented the pinnacle of their sport. Now, people had found other ways to the summit of Maru in the past, but they were on different peaks on the mountain and relatively easier, though still bloody difficult, of course. Conrad and his team were going up the hard way. They were attempting to climb something called the Shark's Fin, a 1,500-foot overhanging wall of nearly featureless granite. People had been attempting to climb it for more than 30 years. Accomplished, serious mountaineers, the best in the world, all of them, and all of them, one by one, were spat off and denied. People began to think it was an impossible climb, that no one would ever conquer it, that it just couldn't be done which is how it should be in many ways. Because Maru isn't just any old mountain. Maru is the abode of the gods. The 
Himalaya is the youngest and most active mountain range on the planet, and it's a result of the Indian subcontinent moving northward into the Asian plate and then the buckling and uplifting of the mountains. And within that is the Gangotri region, which is the source of the Ganga River, the Ganges River, and so sacred to the Hindus. And just north of where Meru is, Mount Kailas. And so you have the origin of the Indus, the Brahmaputra, and the Gangotri three sacred rivers all emanating from this one high point in the Himalayas and it's near to that. So within that there's these sacred peaks and so Shibling which is the abode of Lord Shiva, Bhagarathi which is Shiva's wife and then behind in the valley is Meru which is metaphorically the center of the universe. Meru is sacred to four major religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism which is an ancient Indian religion and Bon a form of pre-Tibetan Buddhism. For the Hindus, Meru is seen as a golden mountain standing directly on the axis of the world, reaching down from where it stands into the depths of the underworld and up to the heavens, supporting the celestial kingdoms above. It is the point at which heaven and earth and hell all come together into one singular giant pyramid of stone. Reaching the top would be the culmination of a life spent in the high mountains, the ultimate expression of what climbing was all about for him, the technical difficulty, the aesthetic beauty, the spiritual significance and humility of being among the most sacred peaks in the world. But as Conrad was about to find out, the gods don't welcome visitors easily. They flew into Delhi in India and then spent three days traveling by bus to the small village of Gangotri in the foothills of the Himalaya. There, they decamped, checked their gear, and started walking. The team was Conrad, Jimmy Chin, who had partnered with Conrad on many climbs over the years, and a young climber called Renan Ozturk. The adventure was about to begin. Initially, as you hike up the Gangotri Valley, you'll see shivling and some of the peaks that are with it, but Meru is tucked and hidden behind, so it's not until you're two days walking in from the road that you actually get a chance to see the mountain. And then that first reveal is always special. And the first thing that one is like, is it safe? Is there a reasonable way up that doesn't have too much danger involved with it? And that's an individual's decision of what their level of risk. And that changes with age and experience. And then the second one is an aesthetic beauty to it. So seeing this peak and being like, wow, that's like a beautiful aesthetic line you'd want to go climb it, and Sharksfin has that. So the mountain itself had been climbed previously. There's other ways up to the top of a mountain, but that fin of granite had not been climbed, and that was our goal. And that fin of granite is daunting, not just to look at, which it is, a 1,500-foot blade jutting up to the sky, but by reputation too. It had seen more attempts and more failures than any other route in the Himalaya, but for some people, people like Conrad, daunting isn't really a word they use. Daunting is a challenge. Daunting is irresistible. After two days hiking in from the road at Gangotri, the fin suddenly revealed itself from behind a sheen of clouds, and they started to cheer. They had arrived. But it's one thing seeing it from a distance. It's another thing entirely when you get to the base. When you look at a photograph of it, it's this two-dimensional representation and you're like wow that's great but one doesn't have an idea for scale and when you walk up to the base of it and we're a little under two meters tall then you see wow that thing is six thousand meters tall and 
the elevation gain on it is about 1,700 meters. And then you can see the snow on the mountain, the wind carrying things around, clouds, the afternoon squalls, all these, it starts to take on the character that is only there when you are in its presence. The lower third of the route is a high angle snow field glacier, so it's permanent ice, and that requires the least amount of technical climbing skills. And then there's the midsection, which is a sort of alpine climbing, and then there's the top third, which is wall climbing. And so the easy climbing at the start, and then there's the traverse, the ridge, to get you to the base of the wall. That's in the mid-third, and then that last third is the overhanging head wall and, and the ice up to the summit. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. They roped up in dusk as the sun set behind the mountain, waiting for the dark and the snow to freeze. Soon night fell, their headlamps lighting up wisps of breathy cold in the few feet in front of their face. They began to climb, hauling up 200-pound loads of gear behind them as they went, relentlessly pushing harder and higher until exhausted. When they couldn't go any further, they actually slept on the mountain face that first night out in the open, a ghetto bivouac, as Renan called it. And they waited there for first light. When it arrived, it was beautiful. The whole valley opened up beneath them in spectacular grandeur and magnitude. They climbed hard throughout the day. It was going great. And then the weather changed. We got up and we were going to do it without fixed ropes. So you continue moving up as you climb. And then the um, moment got up there and then it started snowing. And within something like 36 hours, we were into this 72-hour storm. So rather than go down, we just pitched our ledge and we just sat in there and for three days it snowed and snowed and we started rationing food you'd hear the avalanches outside the camp and the occasional thunderclap and things like that and it was a, a rare storm in that it's sort of as they say once every 50 years that just at the end of the monsoon that you get a two meter snowstorm that sort of blankets all of the Himalaya. They set up their portal ledge, which is basically a hanging tent that is secured to the side of a sheer cliff, no real protection or warmth. The storm got worse and they were trapped. Avalanches rained down just beside them, loud as thunder. The wind rattled the sides of the tent incessantly, loud enough that they couldn't even hear each other, though they were cramped side by side, huddled together for warmth. And they stayed like that for four days, waiting out 
one of the biggest Himalayan storms that any of them had ever seen. That complicated things. The problem was they'd planned for the whole expedition, the entire climb, to take no more than a week. So they only had seven days worth of food. Now, because of the storm, they hadn't even finished that first easiest section of the climb. They were only about 10% of the way up. And they were already almost out of food. Most people would have abandoned the mission at that point. Renan actually thought that's exactly what would happen. Of course, they would go down. But as soon as the storm passed, Conrad and Jimmy racked up and started to climb again. It was impossibly hard. The temperature had dropped to 20 below Fahrenheit. They were shivering uncontrollably all the time, constantly exposed to the elements. Renan started to lose feeling in his feet. They then hit blank sections of rock, utterly unclimbable, and it would seem like there was just no way through. But Conrad would launch into the void, somehow finding a way. Days passed like this. They were down to tiny rations, morsels. They were getting weaker. But still, despite all of this, they pushed on for 11 more days straight until, on their 17th day on the mountain, the summit was finally in sight. They woke at midnight and started climbing. Being on a side of a cliff like Meru, the amount of opportunity for things to go horribly wrong is present. <laughs> you drop your rack, you drop your rope, things, you know, drop your stove. And so you have to really, that heightened sense of awareness that the location brings on kind of takes away all that, oh, am I cold or am I this or that? You're just doing what you can to keep yourself alive. And we'd been out for quite a bit. I mean, just collectively the amount of time. And we couldn't see the summit from where we were. And so we still had climbing to get done and to figure out. And we still had another pitch or two to get up there. It was getting on in the afternoon, realizing that had we gone to the summit, it would have been an open bivouac at, is that risk worth it? So yeah, we turned back below the summit, which was a bummer in a sense, but it's also, it was the right thing to do. We probably could have summited, but that chance that something could have gone wrong and resulted in injury or fatality was there and we had to make the right decision. It was an agonizing decision. They were so close. The summit was just a couple of hundred feet away. They'd suffered for 17 days to reach this point, and they were almost there. But had they gone, they couldn't have made it back to camp before nightfall, so they would have had to spend the night outside at 21,000 feet in Arctic conditions without shelter. They might survive. They might there was a high chance they would have frozen to death up there or been too beat up afterwards to make it safely back down. Conrad talks about acceptable risk, and that's up to the individual. But to reach these kind of impossible summits, to dare to climb into the abode of the gods, you have to risk it. The hard part is knowing when to stop when it's too much. Conrad thought of his wife, his kids back home, his responsibility to Renan and Jimmy, and he did the right thing. He turned back. He lived to climb another day. But he wasn't done with Maru. Not yet. I was planning, like, oh, I'll come back. I'll do it like this. This is how I want to do it. And for me, I'd been there twice. And my rule of thumb with mountains is I go three times. And third time lucky or three strikes, you're out. And let the mountain win in that sense. 
And he got his third chance. He actually tried it briefly in 2003 while on another expedition, he just tacked it on to the end of it as a kind of last minute thought. But he failed quickly and gloriously in his own words, so it almost didn't count. Then 2008, and he came close, but just ran out of time. And then three years later, now in 2011, after dreaming of it for all that time, he found his opportunity, his last strike at the mountain, his last chance to do it for mugs, to fulfill that unfinished business he left up there, just two pitches short of the summit. But six months before leaving... Renan had a huge accident. While filming some big mountain snowboarding, he took a wrong turn and literally went off a cliff. He smashed his head open, fractured his back. It was bad. Jimmy was there with him and thought he was going to die in his arms. He didn't. But he was told he might never climb again. He might never walk again. And he was told that even if he did recover, he would never go to the high mountains again because the injury he'd suffered put him at a greater risk of stroke when he was at altitude. But Renan didn't give up and the team didn't give up on him either. The three of them were going to go up there together or none of them were going to go at all. Remarkably and in record time, the doctors couldn't believe it. Renan beat the odds. He started walking, then he started training. And then, despite the fact that he could die at any minute, just six months later, after his near-fatal accident, Renan, along with Jimmy and Conrad, were back on Maru. Back for one last attempt. They climbed the first third of the route, that steep snowfield. Renan battling through pain and disorientation, the entire team in constant fear that he could drop at any moment. But they made fast progress despite that. And then they reached the midsection, the alpine section, and one of the most dangerous pitches of the entire mountain, the House of Cards. Free climbing is using your hands and feet for upward progress and having a rope in there as your safety net. Free solo is climbing with no rope or no protection, so ultimate stakes climbing. Um, and then aid climbing is where you put in the climbing hardware and you stand on it with a small nylon ladder to get upward progress. And as you stand on it, you're affecting the rock that you're using as to put your piece of protection in. And the House of Cards pitch is such that the blocks that we're standing on are temporary on this planet or they're in a, a state of flux. And if we're not careful, they could dislodge and injure the blair and obviously injure the leader. So it required an extra sense of focus. It was perhaps the most terrifying pitch of the entire climb because so much of it was out of their control. Any mistake could be catastrophic. It was literally like building a house of cards out of immense blocks of rocks, each weighing 10,000 pounds. And if one falls, they all fall on top of you, on top of your belayer. And because your protection has to be placed in those rocks in order to climb them, even if they miss, there's a good chance they'll send you screaming down thousands of feet with them to the glacier below. Jimmy led the pitch, carefully inching up the mountain, the blocks actually moving, physically moving under his weight as he balanced precariously on top of them. It was intense. It took him six hours to climb less than 200 feet. He made it, but it wasn't over. They still had that big wall to climb, that blank face of granite that stretched for more than a thousand feet above them. The hardest part was still to come. On the final pitches, it wasn't beyond what our comfort zone was. It was just exposed. 
Imagine, if you will, that you're out there in a sea of gravity. So instead of being surrounded by water, you're surrounded by gravity. So if you make a mistake, it's going to play for keeps. And so you have to stay tethered to the mountain and know each one of your moves and where you're going and have a backup system to there. And once you've accepted that and you've made peace with that, then that next bit is sort of savoring the exposure, just the thousands of meters of exposure below you and and what that seems like and then looking out over the horizon and just sort of like wow what what's that tributary glacier to that main stem of the glacier and those little peaks in the background gosh they must be huge and so your mind is left to wander and interpret the landscape and being out there with these remarkable views is not the main reason why we do it but certainly a big part of it a sea of gravity I love that term because just like a sea, one wrong move would sink them like a stone. And you can feel that. You can feel that pull constantly, like resting a leaf on the surface of the ocean and waiting for it to slowly fill with water and fall to the depths below. A sea of gravity dragging you backwards, spinning you into the void. When you watch this section in the movie, the exposure is Spine-tingling, it's mesmerizing. Beneath them, thousands of feet of sheer air below are just these abstract patterns of grey and icy white. It's too far, too deep below them to process even what you're looking at. And in this sea, Conrad had to ride the storm. The last pitches were technically the hardest, and of the three of them, he was the only one who could lead them, the only one who had the skill to carry the rope and take that final push to the summit. They woke in darkness and climbed into the morning light. They reached the point where they were forced to turn back three years ago, but this time, there was no stopping them. We had great weather, and we were rested, we were within striking distance, and we were feeling confident, but not overly confident. We knew that we still had a lot of work to do and teamwork to make that summit. But for me, it was like this emotional moment of being out there. And the actual summit itself is this nondescript patch of snow that could be anywhere else. But it was the process of getting us to that summit that was the transformation that we experienced. So if the summit wasn't there, we wouldn't have gone through this journey together as a team to make it to that point. The seldom seen summits, they're always like, wow, there's few people have been here or if anyone's been there, there's that moment that you're experiencing something rare and unique. In my sense, it's the positive of being on the summit with your friends as you make it and then there's like this, wow, we're here together and that memory that was imprinted on your mind at that moment will stay with you. And so there's a tremendous moment of happiness and you enjoy it and it's like this special moment but then the task of getting down is still present you still have to get down the mountain but before they got down there was something special that conrad had to do and it happened as soon as he made that narrow snowy ridge of a summit he shook jimmy's hands he smiled and then exhausted emotional he collapsed onto the ground his head in his hands as if in prayer and he said yeah mugs I got it for you. They had climbed the impossible mountain. They had dared to stand in the abode of the gods. When you enter into the mountains, you're on a geologic time frame. <laughs> so you're no longer 
like in the human thing. You go to a big football stadium and it's like, yeah, it's human construct. We built this thing. We own it. We define it. It's all about us. It's a reflection of how wonderful humans are. But when you go to the mountains, it's on a geologic time frame. And gravity in the mountains, they don't care if you have enough money to fly into space or you're an urchin or you're a pauper or you're an average mountain climber. It's just gravity plays for keeps. It doesn't matter who you are. And so coming away from that, that we're taking nature on in nature's term. I mean, yes, we subjugate it to a certain degree by using our ropes and the equipment that we have, but it's not like we're building a road to the mountain or anything with machinery and anything like that. We're, we're going there and experiencing the mountain on its own terms. And that in turn is a humbling experience. It's a reminder to be present and live in the moment and to cherish those moments. And then the learning part of it is that you get to do these things with cooperation of your friends. And so you're a team in that sort of building it together. And you, your shared drive to make it to the summit is, is understood. And then you work together. And the adversary is not another group of humans or a set of rules or a an inflatable ball or something like that. Rather, it's the elements, it's gravity, it's the mountain. And going through that process is, to me, a very life-affirming and life-enriching experience. To climb the tallest mountains on Earth, to break down those walls once thought impossible, is more than just personal achievement and glory. It is the ultimate symbol of the human spirit for adventure and exploration. And to risk our lives to stand on the roof of the world is more than just vanity. Why we climb is not just because it's there. It is because to reach beyond our grasp is what makes us human and what has carried us so far. Seize the moment. Go out there and do it. Your work will be there when you get back. Life is a, it's a linear experience and you create experiences that you live with and then focus on them and allow them to help define who you are. So seek out those experiences and learn from them and hopefully come back as a, as a person with a new insight into life and then also a way in which you can give back to others. What we do for ourselves dies with us. So if you go and buy something, it's just for you. But what we do for others, that is our legacy. And if you have the time and ability to give something back, to do something for other people, not just yourself, but in the process of doing for other people, you'll have this intrinsic warm glow that you've helped out, and that's priceless. We do not measure greatness, Conrad writes, by the peaks that we climb or the heights that we reach, but rather by the positive impact that we create for ourselves, our communities, and our planet. Our goodness to each other is what makes us whole and what endures for generations beyond our physical feats and achievements. When Conrad, Jimmy and Renan stood on the summit of the hardest mountain in the world, there is a part of all of us that stands there with them. That is why we climb, whatever our mountain, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And that is why we must keep looking upwards, keep scaling new heights, keep daring, to reach into the abode of the gods. Thank you, Conrad. Thank you so much for taking us on this amazing adventure. And thank you for all the adventures, all the mountains and peaks you scaled over your incredible and inspiring career. 
Remember to follow Conrad on Instagram and Twitter at Conrad underscore anchor on Facebook at Conrad anchor official. And his website is simply conradanchor.com, where you can also find out about all the charitable work he's involved with and get involved yourself. Please do that. Those two websites I mentioned in the beginning are the himalayanfoundation.org, that's himalayan-foundation.org, and alexlow.org. Finally, the film of this adventure is called Maru. It's amazing, and it's available to rent on Amazon, YouTube, and elsewhere. It's an incredible film. Go and check it out. Finally, thank you to you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. Check out a few more, subscribe and follow the show and be a part of this community. If you love the outdoors and adventure and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet, you're in the right place. Come and hang out. We're going to get on well. So keep exploring, keep looking for those mountains to climb, keep seizing the moment, keep passing on that goodness, that inspiration, that wonder, because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.